Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would this morning, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the Gospel of John and chapter number 11. You know, death is a very intriguing subject. All of us are aware of it. Certainly, I think we would prefer to avoid thinking about it. And generally, we try not to talk about it. But the statistics are overwhelming. I mean, one out of one people die. And eventually, we will come face to face with death, no matter how old we may be right now. And for some people, especially those who try to avoid it at all costs, at certain times when they see death, it hits them even harder because they have been so trying to avoid it. The London Times put out an article a few years ago. It was an article about the most famous author of the 1930s. His name was William Somerset Maugham. He was a novelist and a playwright, most famous one in the world. Uh, One of his novels was the novel of human bondage, and three different movies were made uh, of that novel. And in 1965, there was an interview done with him when he was 91 years old. Now, he was immensely wealthy. He was widely admired, and in those days, he received 300 snail mail letters from his fans every week. So that was a lot. And this article and this interview was done by his nephew by the name of Robin before his death, and it was held at his fabulous villa on the Mediterranean. And so here's part of what Robin wrote in that interview. He said, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself, which is a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, was worth, and he quotes this in English pounds, but an amount that would be worth today, $15 million U.S. That was his house. He had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined on silver plates, was waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman, but none of those things any longer meant anything to him. The next afternoon, Robin says, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print, and his face was somewhat grim. He said to me, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? He went on to say, Robin, I must tell you, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. Later that evening, after dinner, Willie went on to say this to Robin. Oh, Robin, I've been a failure the whole way through my life. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. Robin said, I tried to comfort him. You're the most famous writer alive. Surely that means something. He replied back, I wish I'd never written a single word. It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's got to know me well has ended up hating me. 
My whole life has been a failure, and now it's too late to change. It's too late. And he was, at that point, beginning to tighten his grip on my hands, Robin said, and he was staring towards the floor. His face suddenly was contorted with fear, and he was trembling violently, and uh, he went on to then stare at the horror of death that was before him, and he began to shriek, go away, he cried. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. And Robin said, I I looked around, and of course, the room was empty as before. And he said to his uncle, there's no one there, Willie. Sometimes you just really get a glimpse of what's coming when death comes. Fifty-plus years later, actor Jack Nicholson, just as his movie The Bucket List was coming out, said this in an interview. He said, I used to live so freely The mantra for my generation was, be your own man. I always said, hey, you can have whatever rules you want. I'm going to have mine. I'll accept the guilt. I'll pay the check. I'll do the time. I chose my own way. That was my philosophical position well into my 50s, he said. As I've gotten older, I've had to adjust then he says this interesting statement. We all want to go on forever, don't we? We fear the unknown. Everybody goes to that wall, yet nobody knows what's on the other side. And that's why we fear death. You know, apart from Christ returning, your life and my life is going to end in death. I was reading this week about a farmer who took his young son out to the barn one day. He wanted to educate his son in the ways of the world, so he grabbed the chicken, and he laid the chicken's head on the chopping block, and he took the chicken's head off with his hatchet. The chicken then took off and ran around without its head, and the young son looked up to his dad, and he said, Daddy, that chicken's dead and doesn't even know it. And in some ways, that's true of us when it comes to the inevitability of death. It is the most inevitable experience that we share as human beings. And we like to avoid it. You know, one way that we like to avoid it is we we like to use euphemisms for death. We don't like to say, well, he died or she died. You know, in English, we might say things like this, she passed or he expired or they slipped away. But we really deep down want to lessen the bite of death, and so we come up with other phrases that seem to have a little humor to them. Maybe it makes it less ominous to us. I don't know. But, you know, we might say, well, you know, he danced the last dance, or he kicked the bucket. And as I was researching this week, I came across a new one. I've never heard this one before. He bought the big Twinkie. I don't even know really what that means. But you know, when you're really facing death, there's really nothing funny about it, is it? Even though we try to make it kind of lighthearted, our time here is limited, and death is a fierce, relentless foe. I've shared with you before my favorite quote from a human being. It's by Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy. He said, basically, I only have two questions. When you boil it all down, he says, I have two questions. Number one, did anybody conquer death? And number two, did he make a way for me to do it too? And really, those are the most important questions I think a human being can ask. We are 
in our series of messages we have entitled, I Am, where we are unpacking who Jesus really is. And we've looked at a number of his I Am statements. First, we looked at his statement where he said, I am the bread of life. I am the satisfier of your soul. And then we looked at, I am the light of the world. I am the illuminator of your heart. And then we looked at the statement last time, I am the good shepherd. I am the caretaker of your life. Today, we come to a fourth one, which is, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the ultimate life giver, says Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 11, I want to read verses 25 and 26, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read it. Jesus is speaking to Martha here, and he says to her, I am, verse 25, the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so as we begin to unpack this statement, I am the resurrection and the life, our plan is to look at four things today. First of all, we're going to look at the dramatic background of this statement. It's very dramatic. And then we're going to look at the dynamic event that occurs in this chapter 11. And then we're going to unpack Jesus' bold claim, because this is a bold claim. And then lastly, we're going to draw some life lessons from this section of the Word of God. So let's begin by looking at the dramatic background of what's happening in John chapter 11. So if you would, go back to the beginning of the chapter and look at verse 1. It tells us there that a certain man was sick, who was Lazarus of Bethany, and it was all in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And verse 2 tells us that this Mary, by the way, was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And of course, her brother was Lazarus, and he is sick. And so the sisters send word to Jesus, and they say, Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. And then look at verse 5. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is seriously sick. They send word to Jesus, who's a day's travel away. And it's interesting, it goes out of its way to say that he loved these people. He loved Martha, he loved Mary, and he loved Lazarus. Even though he loved them, his plan for them did not make them immune from pain and sorrow, immune from sickness and death. And we know that he loves us too, which means his plan does not make us immune from pain and sorrow and sickness and death. What, what, how does Jesus do? Well, look at verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, and that the Son of God might be glorified by it. Look down at verse 6. When he heard that he, Lazarus, was sick, what did Jesus do? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You don't think that would be the normal reaction, but that's what he does. Stays two more days where he was because God's glory needed to 
have some advertisement through the event. You ever notice that God's glory supersedes our preferences? You ever notice that God's glory supersedes our choices of circumstances? It does. And we must acknowledge that because he is king. Well, look down at verses 11 to 15. There's actually a little bit of humor here. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and and he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. I just love the disciples. And they said to him, Lord, uh, don't you understand how this works? If he's fallen asleep, he will recover. He will wake up. Well, they weren't getting the message. So verse 13, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So then Jesus said to them very plainly, hey, guys, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad, that would be a weird phrase to come out about someone that you love. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Look at verse 17. So Jesus came to Bethany, And he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, if you've been dead for four days, decomposition has been occurring in a significant manner by that time. And the first one to greet him is Martha. Verse 20, Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming in the area, she went to meet him. But Mary had stayed back at the house. And Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, notice this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And uh, then he goes on to say in verse 23 to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know he's gonna rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I mean, she's thinking when he says he will rise again that Jesus is referring to the future final resurrection day way ahead. Well, down to verse 28, Martha goes back to Mary and says, you know, the teacher is here. He's calling for you in verse 28. Look at verse 32. So then Mary came to where Jesus was on his journey in, and she saw him, and she fell at his feet, and she said to him, Lord, notice the parallel here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Interesting response to all of this in verse 33. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. What really deeply moved him and troubled him? Well, part of it was just the sorrow of his friends, and he felt that. I think part of the reason why he was deeply moved and troubled is that he knew that death as a consequence of sin was never part of the divine design. He knew it was never the intention that people would experience the consequences of death. So that's the dramatic background of all this. Let's look at the dynamic event that occurs in chapter 11 which is going to be the resurrection of Lazarus. I don't know if you know it or not, but resurrection uh, in the Bible is physical resurrection is a relatively rare thing. We only have it having recorded three times in the Old Testament. You have the widow's son uh, resurrected by Elijah in 1 Kings 17. You have the Shunammite's son resurrected by Elisha 
in 2 Kings chapter 4, you have an interesting situation is where a dead body falls on top of Elisha's bones in 2 Kings 13, 21. The body falls on Elisha's bones and he's resurrected physically. It's a relatively rare thing. It only occurs really, in essence, apart from Christ. Remember, he was resurrected and, and then when he was resurrected, some other bodies were resurrected. Matthew chapter 27 talks about that. But apart from what was related to Christ's resurrection, you only have three resurrections in the New Testament. You have the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7. You have Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. And then you have this event, which is the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. You know, I'm a little bit of a ponderer. Those of you who know me know that. I often think in my brain about things and ramifications of things. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about if you could, you know, take a time machine and go back and choose one event in biblical history, which one would you choose to be present at? I mean, think about that. I mean, apart from Jesus' resurrection, which one would you choose? Maybe you're thinking, you know what? If I could, I'd go back to the parting of the Red Sea. Man, I would love to have been there and watched that happen and watched the whole Egyptian army destroyed. Or maybe you might be saying, you know what I'd like to have seen? I'd like to see David and Goliath, you know, that giant Goliath and the, and the smaller David taking him out with that rock. Or maybe you would say, what, if I could go back, I would want to go back to Mount Carmel and see Elijah versus the 450 prophets of Baal. Maybe that's what I would like to go back to. But, you know, I, I, I know we can't do that, but this is one of the ones I would seriously consider. I would seriously consider, hey, if I could go back, this is, this is, this is the one I want to watch. I want to watch how a guy dies, decomposes for four days, and Jesus says a couple of words, and he comes back from the dead. Look at what happens uh, beginning there in verse 38. It says, so Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave. Usually, they buried people above ground. And a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said to the people, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be a stench. It's going to stink when you move the stone. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and he prayed to the Father. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Good thing he identified one person, or there could have been many. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, and the man who had died came forth, bound head and foot with wrappings. That's what they would do. They would wrap the body with these spices and things so it wouldn't smell as much. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now that is a dynamic event. But you know, 
leading up to this, and we've been seeing this in the study of the Gospel of Matthew with Pastor Mark, and also as we've been looking some in the Gospel of John, you know, there's this conflict going on with the chief priests and the Pharisees, right? And they don't want to believe in this Jesus. They want, to, they want to get rid of this Jesus. They want to argue with him. They want to disprove his claims. Notice the response that happens in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in Jesus. But what's the next verse say? But... Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And you know what this is? This this miracle is the tipping point, the, not a, the tipping point with the chief priests and the Pharisees. The tipping point. Because they realized you can't argue with this one. Look at verse 53. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. This was such a dynamic event, they couldn't deny that it happened. So they planned from this moment on to kill him. So the third thing we want to do, having just looked at the dramatic background and the dynamic event, is we want to unpack Jesus' bold claim. Let me read it again. It occurs in the middle of all these events. Again, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, again, you know, sometimes we, we don't put ourselves into the atmosphere of Scripture. It's important we put ourselves right in the atmosphere You know, can you imagine that you are at a funeral and people are grieving over someone who has died and maybe you're in that sharing time where they pass the mic around? You know, can you imagine what would happen if they passed the mic around and I said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. I mean, that's just a startling claim to make. But that's what Jesus does. Let's look at it again. Verse 25, he said, I am. There's that phrase we've seen before, ego eimi. That little name that stands for the God of creation, the sovereign God of the Old Testament. Ego eimi. I am the first and the last, the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That goes back to the book of the Revelation in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He says there, also, as he says here, I am the resurrection. He says there, ego eimi, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Notice this claim from Revelation. I have the keys to death and Hades. Ego eimi, I am the resurrection. And then he says this. He says, I am the life. I am the life. And we see that theme working its way through the New Testament. In in John chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, in him, in Jesus, was life. 
In John chapter 6 and verse 68, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life. And and, and when he talks about being the life, he's talking about more than a state of being, a physical condition. He says, I am the life. Do you see here that life ultimately, more than just a physical condition or state of being, is a person. Jesus says, I am the life. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, Christ is our life. I am the resurrection and the life. Back to verse 25. He goes on to elaborate. He says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And I think we could add the word in parentheses there, physically. That's what Jesus is saying. He who believes in me will live even if he dies physically. You know, physical death is a separation of our body from the real me, the real you. And he's saying, he who believes in me will live even if he undergoes physical death. And then he he goes on even further in verse 26 to say, and everyone, who's included in that? Who's included in everyone? Help me out here, what? Everyone. Okay, good. (laughs) Just seeing if we're all awake this morning. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And again, we have that special construction that you can do in the original language. So we could translate this phrase this way. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never, absolutely never, ever die. And I think we could put behind that statement in parentheses the word eternally. See, eternal death is a separation from us, from God, for eternity. And so what Jesus is saying is this. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies physically. Everyone who lives and believes in me will absolutely never, ever die eternally. That's encouraging to hear. And by the way, this whole idea of believing in Jesus, believing in me, is a clear emphasis in the Gospel of John. It over and over and over and over again, it is said. For example, John 6, 47. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. Remember, that's that little phrase that you lead in with, hey, something really important is coming next. Listen, listen, listen closely. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. John 6, 47. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. How do you get eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. And then if you go to the very end of the Gospel of John in chapter number 20 and verse 31, it actually gives the whole purpose statement for why the Gospel of John was written. It says there in chapter 20, verse 31, these things have been written 
so that, this is the whole purpose of it all, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and here we go, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Believe, 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 over, 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 and over again. What does that word mean? Does it kind of mean that you sort of accept some fact way out there in the stratosphere? Here's what what believe means. It means to lean your whole weight on his claim. Your whole weight. You trust in that. You entrust yourself to that. You believe in that. Jesus said to her, I am a go me, the resurrection and the life. So he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who believes in me will never, absolutely never, ever die eternally. And then he asks the most important question ever. Do you believe this? Why is it the most important question ever? Because our eternal destiny hinges on our answer. Do you believe this? There are two core elements in Jesus' I am statement. I want us to, just going to review back through. The first core element is the necessity of personal faith. See, it's not a matter of our parents' choice. It's not a matter of our spouse's choice. We must make this choice ourselves. Flip over a couple chapters to the left to John chapter 5. I want us to look at a few verses in John chapter 5. First of all, verses 28 and 29. There Jesus says this in verse 28 of chapter 5. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In other words, Jesus says there are two destinies. Everybody that is in this room, everybody that is in this state, everybody who is in this country, everybody who's alive in the world, everybody who's ever lived, just two destinies. What determines which destiny we partake in? Well, back up a couple of verses to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, here it comes again. Here comes the bottom line. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Out of death into life. And it means not only transforming our bodies for the future, but he desires when he brings us life to transform our lives in the present. Not just for the future, but for now. In 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle John, same author, writes this. He says, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. Notice that is a past tense reality. It's a past tense verb, it's a past tense event. They had already experienced eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. 
See, Jesus' desire, men and women, for each one of us is to change our eternal destiny, yes, but also to transform our life. If we had the time, we could tell our stories, couldn't we? I could tell my story to you. You could tell your story to me of how he has transformed our life. So the first core element is the necessity of personal faith. The second core element is an extraordinary promised future that we have. Again, we read this verse earlier from the Revelation chapter number one. When I saw him, John says, same author, by the way, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He saw God in his glory, Jesus in his glory, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Again, go a me. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's interesting to come to know someone who has the keys to death and Hades. That hope that we see there is what helps us to fight through the daily battles that we have. That hope is what will keep us going when life is confusing and life is hard. That hope will help us to focus on eternity. Remember G.B. Hardy? Two questions. Number one, did anybody conquer death? Not Buddha, not Confucius, not even Muhammad. The answer is yes, somebody conquered death, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Question number two, did he make a way for me to do it too? And the answer to that question is also yes. But the key point is, do you believe? The fourth thing I thought we could do is just quickly, quickly, very quickly, draw some life lessons from this as we come face to face with death. And the first one is to, I would call it, grieving toward eternity. When we have to experience death, I don't mean ourselves personally, but people around us, it's important that we focus on the eternal perspective. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, we do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. And so as we have to face death, in our family and friends, it's important that we grieve toward eternity. Remember, our grief is not permanent when someone knows Jesus Christ. The goodbye that we say is just for a while, that there is a reunion ahead. Second little life lesson I think we can learn from John 11 is to grieve in community. You know, in chapter 11, verse 19, and in verse 33, it talks about the many who were there consoling them and weeping with her. And You know, that's important that we do when we're experiencing death of a friend or a loved one. Don't isolate yourself. It's important to have community around us. And then the third life lesson is simply to rejoice in the ultimate life giver, who, of course, is Jesus Christ. And I want to conclude with Paul's words to the believers in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 58 O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful so much for Jesus, for this statement that 
I am the resurrection and the life. And Father, for some who may be listening to my voice who don't know him as the resurrection and the life, may they be reminded, what does it really profit a person to gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? May they remember the questions of J.B. Did anybody conquer death? Did he make a way for me to do it too? May they trust in him who can give them life eternal, not only to benefit them in eternity, but to benefit them now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 